This is episode 717 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. On today's episode, our vulnerable power grid. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey guys, again, I'm really excited about the project that I completed a few months ago, uh, the Bible study that helps anyone wrestling with preparedness or the biblical aspects of preparedness. Now, I put together a small group video-based Bible study to answer that question. Now, this is perfect for Sunday school groups, small groups, home groups, or just a group of friends who want to get together and who want to look at scripture, but also learn about preparedness and how to get prepared. The Bible study guide comes with a leader's guide complete with two sets of discussion questions for each session, Bible study questions and preparedness questions. I've also included preparedness-based icebreakers and other resources that would be valuable to anyone going through this study. The great thing is you don't even have to be an expert in the Bible or preparedness to lead this. You just need to show the videos and read the questions for discussions. So if you're interested in starting a small group for your friends, or even if you would like to help your church pastor or the pastors in your church understand preparedness better and from a biblical standpoint, you can find the link in the show notes, maybe even gift it to them for a Christmas present. All right, so with that, I want to go ahead and move on forward to remind you about following me on Buy Me a Coffee. I like to share things over there, just things that I'm doing, pictures and, and stuff like that. But I also offer the service of the 10 top articles on Prepper Website every single week. So instead of having to filter through Prepper Website every single day, I send you the top 10 articles in an email in a really nice newsletter, and then you can just uh, click on those and read those. And then if you're completely into uh, you know, listening to podcasts and uh, you don't want to read the articles, you can easily drop them into the Pocket app and you can listen to them there. All right, so for more information, the link is in the show notes. I want to give a shout out to Jex7373 for leaving a review on Apple Podcast. The review says these short episodes, and again, Jack 73 is uh, referring to the prep devotionals that I release on Wednesday mornings. He says these short episodes are like riding along with you and getting a real thorough yet compressed prepping speech. Stay safe on your drives and keep these mini prep devotionals coming. So thanks, Jex, for that. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, you know, sometimes it's crazy. You know, you're driving and you're trying to pay attention to what people are doing. Uh, in the mornings, people are kind of crazy trying to get to work. Maybe they're drinking their coffee, putting on makeup, doing, I don't, I don't know, wh whatever they're doing. So you got to watch out for all these people. And then at the same time, you know, you're focusing on what you're saying and driving and all that kind of stuff. But I really do appreciate the review. And I really am enjoying these. And uh, the great thing is like I have this uh, list that I've just kind of started in my vehicle. When I get an idea, I just kind of jot it down. And so uh, it's helpful to be able to refer back to that and uh, share ideas that are that are coming up. So again, hey, thanks for that, Jex. And guys, if you would like to review the podcast, uh, I would greatly appreciate it and then uh, rate it as well. Uh, I, thank you for that. Okay, so let's jump into our article of the podcast. It comes to us from survivalsullivan.com. 
And the title of the article is An Assessment of the U.S. Power Grid and Its Vulnerabilities. I think this is a great article. It's a great overview and something to consider. I think there's a lot of maybe mind shifts that I'll talk about as uh, after I finish reading the article. Uh, things that we should be thinking about when we consider power and how we use power, our relationship with power and all those different kinds of things. And taking into consideration how vulnerable our grid is uh, in, in so many different ways. So let's go ahead and jump into this article. I think it's a good one. And then I have some comments at the end. Again, the title is An Assessment of the U.S. Power Grid and Its Vulnerabilities, coming to us from SurvivalSullivan.com. We face many problems and ongoing threats in America today, but one of the most pervasive and the most pressing or threats to our power grid it is difficult to understand just how important electricity is to our modern society, and most folks are totally, completely unprepared for a sustained loss of electricity. Far from being a luxury that can turn on lights at the flick of a switch or animate all of our wondrous modern gadgetry, electricity is now woven into the DNA of our society and is quite literally the beating heart of commerce, communication, national defense, and more. It is terrible then to consider how old, decrepit, and increasingly vulnerable to disaster or attack the entire power grid is. But consider it, we must, in a thorough understanding of the vulnerability of our national power grid and our attendant dependency on it, is the first steps towards insulating ourselves against a long-term or indefinite loss of that power. The consequences of such an event can barely be put into words. This article will serve as your assessment of the current status of the United States power grid, its vulnerabilities, and the likely outcomes you'll be facing should a regional or nationwide grid down scenario occur. So virtually everyone living in the United States today, and indeed throughout much of the West, quite literally cannot imagine life without the reliable, constant presence of electricity. It is no overstatement to assert that our electrical grid is the single most important part of our nation's infrastructure. It is even more important than our telecommunications hub and financial industry, national defense, or transportation. This is because our electrical infrastructure is quite literally integral to the continued operation and sustainment of all of the other mentioned components of our society. If the electrical grid goes down, many elements will cease working entirely until power is restored, and what few remain working will be severely degraded or limited in capability. The ongoing operation of our electrical grid is the keystone to modern life as we know it, and anything that threatens it threatens to start disastrous dominoes falling in rapid succession, ending in calamity. But in a strange sort of symbiosis, our electrical power grid is itself dependent on many other utilities and other parts of the infrastructure. Natural gas, oil, transportation, and telecommunication systems are all vital to the ongoing upkeep and operation of electrical grids from coast to coast, and if any of these systems are delayed or disrupted, it will start an already complex and tottering electrical grid to begin swaying and perhaps collapse. Aside from big picture national infrastructure and societal initiatives, all of us little people are still entirely dependent on electricity for running our day-to-day -day lives. 99 times out of 100, Electricity is what will make the lights come on to banish the darkness. We rely on electricity to power our devices that keep us connected to the internet, receive radio signals, or operate our televisions. Electricity keeps our banks on and functioning. 
be it at the teller counter or at the ATM. Electricity keeps grocery store shelves replenished and stock rooms receiving. We even need electricity to fill up our personal vehicles with gasoline or to recharge them directly in the case of all electric vehicles. Imagine all of that, everything, ceasing in an instance and perhaps not coming back on for a very long time. When it fails, it will fail quickly and with ever-increasing rapidity. Despite this extraordinary importance to the preservation of life and society in the United States, our electrical system is frighteningly vulnerable both from within and without. The actual components of our electrical system, the very equipment that allows it to operate and transmit electricity to facilities and homes is old and outdated and getting older by the day. The layout of the system is also a major point of vulnerability, being both obsolete and highly Byzantine in design in many regions. The principles of engineering used to construct and connect it are also proving to be increasingly out of date compared with modern, better practices. In total, all of these shortcomings add up to a nationwide grid that is by and large incredibly frail, fragile, and vulnerable to disruption, if not outright destruction. Aside from quality of life and production problems like high failure rates throughout the nation that just get worse as time goes by, inefficient production and delivery of power and rising repair costs, we must also deal with maintenance and refits that grow increasingly expensive and complex owing it to the slapdash, antiquated nature of the grid. What does this mean in practical terms? It means that our electrical grid, considered at local, regional, and national scales, is highly vulnerable to everything from natural disasters and direct action attacks to simple rough weather and seemingly minor accidents. Any or all of them, as you will soon learn, are enough to trigger total blackouts over a shockingly wide area potentially affecting millions or tens of millions of people to say nothing of other critical infrastructure. It's not bad enough that the power grid is old, outmoded, and vulnerable to internal and external threats, along with the odd brush from bad weather or legitimate natural disasters. Further compounding the problem geometrically are the ever-increasing demands in society for electricity along with maintenance and upgrade budgets that are slashed and slashed again as the political football is kicked about or is otherwise rated as part and parcel of the graft that all of our elected officials engage in. The government is also interested in converting every single one of its vehicles, at least those used in civic roles, to fully electrical powered. The increasing funneling of taxpayer money to Tesla and other companies pioneering these technologies is proof enough of their commitment. Consumers, driven by a counterfeit ecologically conscious ideology or form or from government mandates in various states, are likewise starting to buy into electric consumer vehicles technology. Constant attacks against reliable forms of major power production like coal, natural gas, oil, and especially nuclear power in lieu of insufficient or inefficient dead ends like solar and wind power likewise means that demand is only going up, 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 while production of electricity barely grows at all, goes stagnant, or even operates at a net loss due to ever-increasing inefficiency as mentioned previously. This means that the already overburdened, vulnerable, and inefficient power grid will be subjected to growing demands that it can barely handle as is in ideal conditions. What do you think will happen to the power grid and to consumers' access to steady, reliable electricity when times are tough? 
heat waves, direct action attacks, successful cyber warfare intrusions, major natural disasters, cosmic EMP events, and more all have the potential to completely capsize our power grid. So I guess that would be like cosmic events and EMP events. Maybe that's the way it should have been written there. So make no mistake, there's going to be no nationwide initiative to revamp our power grid in any meaningful way. There will not even be any money found to afford it a significant overhaul or badly needed maintenance in many areas. Things are going to limp along like this for the foreseeable future with everyone involved happy to kick the can down the road or sweep the problem under the rug until such time as the inevitable happens and a total system collapse occurs. What is likely to be the instigating factor for that collapse? We have no shortage of possible offenders to look forward to. Keep reading to get an overview of the most serious and pervasive threats to our power grid, and after that we will examine a selection of some of the biggest and most destructive, not to mention most costly, power grid failures in the 20th and 21st century. The following section details just a few of the major threats to our power grid, though some of the in entries on this list seem minor, even trivial. They take on an entirely new significance when you consider that the U.S. power grid consists of more than 10,000 functioning power plants, nearly 20,000 electrical generators, and a combined 450,000 miles of distribution and transmission lines serviced by over 50, 55,000 substations. I'm going to read that one again, all right? There's a lot of information there. When you consider that the U.S. power grid consists of more than 10,000 functioning power plants, nearly 20,000 electrical generators, and a combined 450,000 miles of distribution and transmission lines serviced by over 55,000 substations. This astonishingly massive, intricate, and interconnected network could be taken offline entirely, and I mean the whole thing taken offline, if just nine strategically chosen substations out of those 55,000 plus were taken down by force majeure or direct action. Guys, I'm going to say that one again. And I don't know, there's no data here to back that one up, but you got to believe it's, it's kind of true. So again, this astonishingly massive, intricate, and interconnected network could be taken offline entirely, and I mean the whole thing taken offline, if just nine strategically chosen substations out of those 55,000 plus were taken down by force majeure or direct action. So that's kind of a scary thought there when you really think about how big the United States is and how much we depend on power. Um, I think one of the uh, one of the hopes is that those nine strategically chosen substations are not put out there in public and like, hey, if these nine are taken out, you know, the whole power grid goes down. Uh, that's not something that we want people to to know. I I guess hopefully that's true. All right, so uh, continuing to read on, keep that in mind as you read through this list. We all take for granted that the electricity will be there when we plug in the appliance or flip the switch. Luckily, it is much of the time, but there is no endless fountainhead of electricity to supply all needs at all times. As hard as it is to imagine for lay people, that supply is decidedly finite. As demand increases, especially peak demand that arises as a result of changing conditions or unforeseen circumstances, operators of the electrical grid at large must begin making choices about where and when they will supply power. This involves a shell game process by which power may be reduced or cut off in some areas and redirected to others. 
Obviously, if you're one of the unfortunates left in the dark, that is bad enough. But the intricate nature of the power grid means that the very process of rerouting power entails a certain amount of risk as it is fraught with opportunities for error and then subsequent catastrophe. When power grid operators are forced to rob Peter in order to pay Paul, when it comes to supplying power to a hungry populace, it is only a matter of time before a confluence of circumstances and human error result in a cascading failure. And guys, that's just, uh, you know, I've talked about the, uh, you know, the winter storm that we had here in Texas. That was part of the case there. And we also experienced this during the summertime when it's peak, uh, peak summer, peak heat. And we, we experience where they're rerouting uh, electricity for, you know, for the, for the grid. And so you might lose power for a couple of hours. Uh, that doesn't happen very often, but that has happened uh, before. All right, so moving on here. Naturally, we all want to think that the people who very literally keep the lights on represent our best and brightest minds. And thankfully, so much of the time, this is true. The inescapable reality is that they are still, at best, human and prone to making mistakes or, at worst, barely qualified to be operating the milkshake machine at a greasy spoon diner. Human error and a good old-fashioned incompetence have before and will again result in calamitous power grid failure. I don't mean to say that flipping switch A when they should have pulled lever B instead means a ruined parade or Christmas tree lighting. I mean to say that monstrous blackouts affecting tens of millions can be a direct consequence of even a single procedural error. Such is the nature of electrical generation and continual power supply in America today, thanks to our problems I have spent much of this article outlining. With layoffs, walkouts, worker shortages, and more affecting every facet of society thanks to a mysterious pathogen of unknown origin turning the world upside down, you can bet on rushed replacements, underqualified workers, and endless overtime taking its toll on our power grid workforce very soon when that occurs, lights out. And if I remember correctly, reading about Venezuela, that was part of the issue there uh, with their power is that they had an antiquated system. There was only certain people who knew how it ran and, and knew how things were configured. And when those people started uh, leaving for other countries and, and you know taking their family elsewhere, there weren't people who knew how to run the grid uh, effectively. And so that was one of the issues that they had there. All right, so moving on. Accidents, great and small, are another common cause of power outages. We have all been there. A windy day or stormy night sends trees, branches toppling into power lines or even knocks over power poles themselves, resulting in a localized, hopefully, power outage. Bigger disasters, too, can have deleterious effects on our supply of electricity. Everything from automobile and plane crashes to industrial accidents and even mishaps at power generation facilities themselves. Any or all of these can plunge our society into darkness. But what you might not know is that even the most mundane of accidents could turn into gargantuan regional blackouts that last for days, weeks, or potentially even months with all of the attendant effects we have discussed. You'll read about one such comparatively recent incident just below. Something as simple as a branch toppling from a tree onto nearby power lines could result in a sequence of events that knocks out power across multiple states for millions of people. No joke. One of the most obvious and pervasive causes of blackouts are natural disasters. 
relatively small ones like tornadoes, unpredictable ones like avalanches and wildfires, and massive regional-scale catastrophes like Category 5 hurricanes. Each and every one of them can result in widespread total system damage to the power grid, and the aftermath of these events make diagnostic and repair tasking considerably more difficult. In the case of the largest disaster, society as a whole in the affected areas can be completely ground to a halt. Even accessing the affected areas to begin to assess the level of damage can take weeks. Naturally, the loss of power in these areas complicates rescue and retrieval efforts in addition to other post-disaster initiatives. Some disasters don't even necessarily take place on our planet, but instead happen to it. Cosmic phenomena like solar storms and coronal mass ejections can project incredibly powerful electromagnetic energy across the gulf of space, potentially impacting the atmosphere of our planet and raising merry hell with all electronics, including the transmission lines and substations of the power grid itself. A particularly powerful event could quite literally fry the entirety of the grid in the blink of an eye, rolling us back to the Stone Age. The most severe disasters can disable power for millions, even tens of millions, across a regional area and leave them in the dark for months on end. As mentioned above, our power grid is a network, a colossal system comprised of millions and millions of components. Each of these components, seemingly barely significant in terms of the whole, is nonetheless vulnerable to direct attack by malicious entities or individuals in bewildering number of ways. Most of these installations and components are completely, totally unguarded and practically cannot be protected except in the most rudimentary ways or in the case of the most sensitive or crucial installations. Just in the past couple of decades, we have seen small groups of individuals target substations with rifle fire, damaging transformers and other components, fuel tanks targeted with improvised explosive devices, power line sabotage, and so much more. The ubiquitous distributed nature of the power grid combined with a lack of protection means that simple human ingenuity is more than enough to inflict catastrophic damage on all but the most heavily defended or hardened components or installations. Frankly, it is a small wonder that the U.S. has not yet plunged into a long night by a simple, easy-to-execute attack by an organized enemy. By far, the most insidious and increasingly one of the most likely threats to our power grid is that posed by cyber warfare efforts or individual cyber attack. An incredibly complex topic made even more complicated by the patchwork nature of our electrical grid, ongoing efforts to research and bolster the cyber defense of our power grid have been ongoing since 2005. We have already seen what devastating computer viruses like Stuxnet's worm can do to even critical infrastructure. One need look no further than what happened to the Iranian nuclear program for proof of that. Though that worm was not deployed against the United States, it takes no imagination at all to believe that similar cyber weapons are ready and waiting in their digital silos for deployment against the U.S. by our near-peer enemies, or worse yet, are already lurking out in cyberspace primed to infect essential systems before being activated. Ongoing testing and red teaming of the United States' various electrical systems has shown that electronic warfare efforts, including computer hacking and autonomous viral weapons, are capable of logging keystrokes, manipulating system status and various controls, and interfere with data monitoring and other essential ongoing tasking. A coordinated cyber attack could offline the American electrical grid almost instantly and by design or accident cause calamitous coast-to-coast -coast damage. 
So here are some examples of major 20th and 21st century regional power grid failures and incidents. The scenarios I have alluded to throughout this article are not theoretical. History, even near history, furnishes for us many examples of just how bad and how widespread power grid failures can be and give us a grim estimator of just how bad the damage can be. The only thing theoretical for our purpose is just how long the next big one could last. Read through the following historical blackouts and their causes and you'll have an accurate picture of what we are up against and what you will be facing the next time something similar happens. So the first one up is the Great New England Blackout of 1965. This humongous blackout affected eight states throughout New England and resulted from human error, though a tragically tiny one. A cascading failure resulted after a technician set a protection mechanism in the wrong position. Five minutes of failing power later, more than 30 million citizens had no electricity at all. Today, this is a classic example of the societal effects of a sustained widespread power outage. Some people were trapped in blackened skyscrapers or in halted subway trains deep underground. New York City did as New York City always does and immediately began looting and pillaging. All right, some of you from New York or the East Coast are not going to like that one, and maybe that's not fair, but uh, that's what this author said there. Beleaguered, beleaguered police blunted the edge of the chaos, but could hardly contain the outbreak of crime. So next up is the New York City blackout of 1977. Another big Apple blackout, this one caused by multiple lightning strikes that completely knocked out power to the vast majority of New York City proper. Though not particularly catastrophic from a technical perspective, this blackout could not have occurred at a worse time. With socioeconomic tensions at an all-time high and the city already on the brink of paranoia from the ongoing Son of Sam murders, pandemonium erupted in the immediate aftermath of the blackout. Rioting, looting, arson, and murder are always on the menus in New York City and are all were being served by the cartload. Okay, this guy doesn't like New York City, right? The author doesn't like New York City. We can, we kind of get that, right? And, and in reality, that this kind of stuff, especially nowadays, you know, I know this was 1977, that can, stuff nowadays could, I mean, it could happen anywhere. So homes were broken into by the hundreds, thousands of stores were robbed or looted, and more than 1,000 instances of arson were committed, including more than a dozen multiple alarm callouts. Every police structure that could hold prisoners was committed to doing so. Even though this blackout lasted little more than a day, total damages were over a billion dollars. Next up, West Coast Blackout of 1982. This massive blackout originating near Tracy, California, was a result of a simple accident. Freak high winds knocked one high-tension transmission tower into another, which subsequently toppled into another, creating a literal domino effect of cascading failure. Worst came to worst when response teams bungled the initial procedures and compounded it with shoddy communications. Communities as far away as Las Vegas, Nevada were plunged into total darkness and had no idea why. This blackout should serve as one of the best recent examples of how even comparatively minor mishaps can be compounded by human error, improper procedure, and confusion. Then we jump to 2003 for the Northeast Blackout. In upstate Ohio during August of 2003, transmission lines that were already strenuously overloaded by high demands and contacted by branches from overgrown trees and other vegetation. This transmission line tripped and went offline, normally a minor event. 
However, a malfunction with the notification alarm system controlling software meant that power company operators were none the wiser at first. By the time they became aware of the situation, three more transmission lines were rendered offline and then things got really bad. The subsequent cascading electrical failure resulted in a massive blackout virtually unprecedented in its scope, impacting more than 45 million residents throughout the American Midwest, Northeast, and portions of Southeast Canada. More than 250 power plants were put into failure states and multiple major American cities, among them Cleveland, Detroit, and New York, were plunged into darkness. The full restoration of power took more than a week. Then Southwest, the Southwest blackout of 2011. This blackout, shockingly widespread in its scope, was the result of human error and resulted in a loss of power or interruption of power to more than two and a half million people in the American Southwest, predominantly Southern California and Arizona. A technician made a grave mistake while working on a capacitor bank at a substation in Arizona, and the consequences were yet another cascading power failure. Airlines, schools, public resources, water, sewage, banks, and more were all affected with many being brought to a standstill. Though the outage lasted less than a day, this instance sharply illustrates how bad even the simplest of errors can be when dealing with our power grid. Then we jump to Hurricane Sandy, and that's 2012. The landfall of Hurricane Sandy in October of 2012 knocked out power in 22 states and more than 8 million residences. The damage to regional power grid installations and facility was nearly total and included destroyed terminals, flooded or submerged substations, and badly damaged power plants. As a direct consequence of grid damage from the storm, airline flights were canceled, aircraft were grounded, trains could not run, and public water and sewer systems catastrophically failed. In many places, the total loss of electricity, including reliable backup systems, meant that sewage actually contaminated drinking water supplies. Radio and cellular communications were likewise affected in the most badly hit areas, further hampering efforts to alleviate the problems. This outage cost anywhere from an estimated $15 to $22 billion in damages and losses. Full restoration of electricity and services took months. Then, I remember this one, the California substation sniper attack 2013. Early in the morning on April 16, 2013, multiple shooters using various rifles began shooting at and severely damaged 17 transformers at the Metcalf Transmission Substation in Coyote, California. These transformers were perforated by gunfire and leaked more than 50,000 gallons of oil before overheating. Prior to the direct attack, the gunmen or others associated with them cut fiber optic telecom cables elsewhere. Though low-tech in nature, the attack was highly organized and professional in execution, with the perpetrators going uncaught to this very day. Though mercifully no cascading failures resulted from the attack, damage was substantial, totaling more than $15 million. Multiple experts consulted on the attack agreed that if conditions were even slightly different, the impact on the electrical grid could have been massive. It remains one of the best examples of how easily and severely small organized teams could affect the power grid. Now, after remembering that one, I don't remember this one uh, from 2013, the Arkansas grid attack. So coming just a scant few months after the attack on the substation in California, another coordinated series of three attacks took place against substations and transformers in Cabot and Scott, Arkansas. The first attack sabotages support tower for a massive electrical line that resulted in it being dropped into an adjacent railroad track 
and severed after a passing train ran over them. Power to the entirety of Cabot, Arkansas was cut. A later direct attack on a substation in Scott, Arkansas caused more than $2 million in damage, but thankfully minimal disruption. These perpetrators were caught, but it again further illustrates the extreme vulnerability of even the most essential components in the transmission of electricity. Minimal planning with plenty of motivation and low-tech tools and weapons are more than capable of crippling the power grid in a local or regional area. What about the Arizona diesel supply bombing in 2014? Nogales, Arizona, June 2014. An incendiary IED was placed under a 50,000-gallon diesel storage tank serving a liquid fuel generator and a power station. Mercifully, the bomb failed to ignite the diesel fuel even though it functioned. This was a comparatively localized attack, and if it had gone off as planned, it would have instantly cut power completely to tens of thousands of people in the area. So the United States power grid is a massive conglomeration of installations, equipment, and interconnected systems that are increasingly decrepit, poorly maintained, and frighteningly vulnerable to a variety of mishaps, accidents, disasters, and enemy action, including cyber warfare. As time goes on, relatively minor incidents will cause bigger and bigger problems until eventually the whole system comes crumbling down. This is not a matter of if, but when. All right, so this can be a pretty scary topic when you think about um, how vulnerable we are. Uh, we go through our lives, we get up in the morning, we you know, take showers, we go to work, we, you know, day in and day out, we live that way. Uh, we take for granted that we flip the switch and the electricity is on. So it's kind of scary when you think about, uh, you know, something like this. And a lot of people don't like to think about it or don't want to think about it because it makes their mind kind of go off in, in you know, to the crazy, you know, to, to, to craziness. But uh, I think something like this is more likely. And even the, mis you know, the mistakes that happen by people that are, uh, that are running the power grid, simple little mistakes that maybe they just weren't paying attention. Maybe they have something else on their mind, uh, whatever it might be anywhere to, you know, tree branches. And you think about all the the amount of lines that we have, the electrical lines in the United States and, and you know, a tree falling on, on one of those and, and what that can cause. So I think that is more likely, you know, having these kinds of issues are more likely than worrying about EMPs and CMEs and solar flares. Now, right now, if you're listening to this and you know, I'm recording this, you know, for, uh, uh, Sunday, October 31st, 2021, you know, there's a lot of talk about the, the solar maximum and, and the sun is uh, popping off flares and, and all different kinds of things. But I still believe that this is probably the thing that uh, is more probable for us uh, in as far as losing power. Uh, again, going back to the stuff that we experience with hurricanes, when we have hurricane issues down here in the Gulf, or those of you that live up north and have to deal with the blizzards, uh, you experience, you know, just power lines having, you know, ice on them and breaking from that. And then uh, we had the extreme cold down here and, and I, it just, it's more likely, you know, for me there. So just a couple of things to think about uh, when we're talking about this. When there is a power grid failure and they are thinking about where they're going to focus their efforts to bring up power uh, before, you know, all the rest of it. Let's just say they're, you know, the a whole state has been taken out. They're going to focus more on the cities where the more people are. 
And that's that's something for people that live in rural settings uh, you need to really think about. Uh, because if your power goes out, if you're very dependent on power, then you really do need to have a backup system if something like this were, were to happen. And I always go back to the... Um, the topic of uh, Argentina, and I remember Fernando talking about this, that when supplies came in and things, it would, they were brought into the cities first. That was where the majority of people were. They're going to take care of the, the majority of people before it goes out there into the rural settings. So that's something to consider, and you need to have backups. If it's a regional power outage or a state power outage uh, where they're having to deal with that, now, even with this when we had the freeze, you know, this year, earlier this year here in, in Texas, uh, I have friends that talked about people who lived more rurally that are in the rural settings that they they were without power a lot longer. And we're not even I mean, we're just talking about power coming online. Uh, we're not even talking about there was, you know, lines were cut or anything like that. So you need to have some kind of uh you know, power system set up, a generator, whatever it might be, to be able to uh, withstand that. Now, other people would say, "Hey, out here in the country, uh, we can get along without having all that power." I mean, we you know we we know how to survive. We have um, ways to do that. But if you are out there, maybe you're new to a rural setting. That's something that you need to consider. So another thing that really needs to be said. And when we talk about preparedness, this goes for not just this power aspect of it, but it really goes for um, all of preparedness. I think sometimes when people think about a long-term situation, or maybe they're thinking about, hey, I'm going to have a retreat, you know, if the poop hits the fan or, or whatever it might be, they think about recreating their life right now in that long-term situation, in that SHTF situation. And we really need to get away from that. If we were truly in an SHTF situation, things would change greatly. And so, you know, there are things that you're going to have to give up. You might be used to having a refrigerator. That might be something you give up. You might be used to taking two showers a day. You know, that's something that you might have to give up. Uh, being able to go to um, and not prepare your food and be able to go to fast food or go out to a restaurant, you know, every night or a couple of times a night, that is something that you're going to have to give up. So when we're talking about power and we're talking about a long-term situation, so of course, I know that some of these things that they talked about that were kind of regional, uh, it took uh, a, a day, it took a week. Uh, sometimes it, you know, I think in one of these uh, situations, it took a month. I know with uh, some of the situations that have happened in Louisiana with the hurricanes and stuff, there are there were people that went weeks and weeks without power. Now, the thing about that is you can get in your vehicle, you can drive you know, an hour away where there is power and you're able to fill up gas cans and come back and, and use your generator and kind of go from there. If there was a long-term SHTF situation that was affecting a region or even the whole United States, you wouldn't be able to do that. So you really need to think about what is a necessity? What is something that I completely need to have? And this is hard for, for people to understand. They don't want to hear it. It's like, I want to recreate my life in 
you know, in, in Mad Max, I want to be able to have everything I have now in Mad Max, right? Or, you know, the zombie apocalypse or whatever, you know? And I'm just kind of just using that as metaphors for long-term situations. We really need to understand that. So some people will purchase a whole house generator and a lot of people have recently purchased that. I know that I, I work with people who have talked about getting one of those. Now, some of those can be anywhere from $10,000 to $20,000. And if you're in a situation where you still have natural gas and that is working, is great. You know, I work with someone who said that during the freeze, they were able to go over to their neighbors and their neighbors had all the power. Now, they're, they had a Generac system that they had purchased. And, you know, these people have money. They're able to invest in, in that. And so they were they had all the lights on. They had all of that kind of stuff on. They had a fireplace. They were nice and toasty and everything was great. She was able to deal with, uh, with the cold in that way. But a lot of people can't afford those whole house generators. And not only that, with the price of energy going up, so oil, gas, natural gas, all of that, it's very expensive to run a house on natural gas. I mean, you think about the prices that you're paying right now for, if you have natural gas coming into your home for cooking and for maybe, you know, your water heater, maybe you have a, a dryer that runs on natural gas or whatever. Um, you know, you think about what you're paying there and think about powering a whole generator all day long for multiple days. That can be very expensive. And again, if you have the money for that, that's fine. You know, you more power to you. Um, there's a lot of people out there, the, the people that are, um, you know, the, the Jeff Bezos of the world and, and the, you know, those guys who own, own those big uh, corporations, you know, they have those kinds of homes. You've heard about those people having uh, bunkers and creating, you know, places to get away. And, you know, those people are not listening to a podcast like this. I mean, we're real people living in the real world and, uh, you know, we, we're managing our money correctly uh, or, you know, we're managing the money that we have, you know, to the best of our ability. So one of our things is not to invest in a whole house generator. I mean, you're investing ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 in something that's sitting there and maybe kicks into gear if you need it in an emergency situation. And there's no guarantee that you would have it in a prolonged SHTF situation, right? So again, you need to think about the necessities. You think of, you need to think about what would be important and you need to be able to mitigate those situations when you have a long-term grid uh, down situation. So let's talk a little bit about the necessities. Do you have someone who needs a medical device run by electricity to survive. So maybe you have someone who is on a, some kind of home uh, dialysis machine and they need electricity. You have somebody who is on a breathing machine. They need electricity. In that kind of situation, you need to have some kind of way to uh, have a battery backup, have a way to charge those batteries, um, whether that's solar, whether that's a generator, whether that's it's multiple ways of doing that. Um, you need to be able to have something along those lines. Another necessity would be the food in your freezer. Now, we need to have some short-term solutions because you don't want to power your refrigerator and refrigerator. You couldn't do that long-term because eventually fuel will run out. So you think about how you would handle that. So first of all, you might have a generator. So you might have a generator and you might be using that for your home. Now, Fuel is expensive, and if you were in a really long-term situation, 
you wouldn't want to just continue running your generator nonstop. So that's some, that's one of those things that you would uh, have to, to know. You would have to have some kind of communications. You would have to have uh, some kind of radio that you can figure out, okay, what's going on? Is this a localized event? Is this a regional event? Is this like the whole grid in the United States has gone down event? In that case, you're going to be very use your generator and the fuel that you have very sparingly so that you can keep uh, your fuel and make your fuel last as long as possible and keep your freezer cold as long as possible so that you can slowly eat from it and it doesn't go bad. Some of us have hundreds of dollars, maybe even thousands of dollars in freezers and we don't want we don't want to waste that because the power goes out. So a generator might be one of those things. Okay, I'm going to turn my generator on uh, for a few hours every day uh, so that I can make sure that I keep the things in my freezer frozen. At that time, I'm also going to charge my batteries. I'm going to charge up my phone. I'm going to charge up you know, whatever else electronic devices that I have. I'm going to be very wise about how I use my generator. If you don't have a generator, then the other thing that you might want to consider is an inverter. And I've talked about this a, a lot. And I've done that before. Although I have a generator, I've used my, it was just easier to, you know, to, to boot up the inverter and to get the inverter connected to my vehicle to use that to keep my freezers running cold. And so, you know, for a couple of hours and you just kind of boot it up and, and, and you're ready to go. So that might be another factor. That might be like a tier two for you. Your generator might be, you know, tier one, your tier two might be the inverter and you're going to use up the gas in your vehicle to keep the stuff that is in your uh, freezers cold and you're going to be eating from those you're going to be you know very very purposeful about uh eating and cooking and and all that kind of stuff that's going to be part of it but you're going to be slowly eating from your freezer you want to keep everything as cold as you can and frozen as long as you can so you can eat from it because you're not going to be able to sustain the freezer or your refrigerator staying cold forever, right? You want to be able to use up what you have in there before it goes completely bad. You don't want to have to throw anything away. A tier three for this necessity of saving the food in your freezer or in your refrigerator might be canning. You might, you might be someone who cans on a regular basis. You might have some canning supplies put back just in case if the, you know, everything kind of goes haywire, you're able to, uh, to can. And, and then you need to have a way to can. You need to have fuel, whether that's propane or, or however you're going to, to do that, to be able to get your canner going, working so that you can save some of that meat. Maybe you have both of those things going, depending on how big your freezer is. Maybe you are using a generator, but at the same time you are canning so that you can save some of these things for later on down the road. Another necessity that you would have is, do you have any really, really young people in your home or the elderly people that might might need to stay cool, might need to, uh, you know, uh, might need that for themselves? In that case, you might want to have some battery-operated fans, and then you need the batteries recharged so that you can, and a way to recharge them, whether that's solar or however you're going to do it, so that you can kind of keep them cool to where their bodies eventually start getting better acclimated to uh, to to the real world and to what's going on. And so you think think through your necessities. What do you need, and how can you get by? This idea of I'm going to have, you know, a whole house generator or I'm going to be able to, you know, live like normal with, you know, this with a with a generator or, or whatever 
or with solar is not is not practical. And so we have to be really practical practical about what we can uh, what we can do when we talk about moving forward here. Really, two necessities you know outside of you know the young and the elderly and uh, taking care of them. You know, if someone has a medical issue um, and and saving your food in uh, in in your freezer and your refrigerator is going to be we need power for communications and power for lights, right? That that's going to be that's going to be the big deal. And so you might want to have some kind of solar generator where you're able to uh, power your uh, whatever it is, whether it's a ham radio, whether it's a shortwave radio, uh, whether it's just a regular radio that uh, works on rechargeable batteries where you're able to get information of what's going on if there's information out there. And then you want to be able to charge batteries for the use of, of at night, right? So hopefully things are really quiet where you are at night, but there's always things that go bump in the night and you want to be able to have, you know, one of your high powered uh, flashlights like I've talked about before with those really powerful batteries where you're able to check on what's going on. You want to be able to have a headlamp and be able to recharge the batteries that go into those headlamps. So there's solar generators out there that are already, you know, that you can go ahead and, and buy and they're already made for you if you have no desire to DIY it. I would be very careful though. There are some that are just junk and they're sold. Uh, you know, they do a great job of marketing. They do a great job of getting out there for you and, and getting out in front of you and you see them all the time. And because you see them all the time, you might think, oh, these got to be pretty good. I mean, they're, they're able to, to get it out there and some of them are just junk. So really you need to, you know, if, if it's something that you're depending on, you really need to get a good one if you're going to do one that's already kind of, you know, like bought for. And you need to understand that the limitations of it, that it is not like you, you can't use up the solar generator, use up the battery and put it out for a couple of hours, you know, in the sun. And then you're you're with the solar panel and then you're back to normal. You run it down really, really low and you don't have a really bright sun. You have a cloudy day. You're going to have some issues here. So you need to understand that you, you know, the limitations of this, but it's, you know, so anyway, going, going back, if you want to buy one that's already put together for you, that you might be able to trust, it's going to be a Yeti. Go, go look at those. They, they are very expensive. Um, and there are others that are, you know, just as expensive, but do your research on that. Then you can DIY your, your own. And I, I love, and we've had this conversation in the email group here recently about DIYing. We have a couple of guys that are just really uh, great at doing this and they have used it and tested it out. And so uh, you can DIY your own solar generator. Uh, and it's not really difficult. You just need to, to research a little bit and get some help. And again, that's why I like our exclu exclusive email group. So you have uh, a solar generator and then you think about batteries and batteries that you can recharge. There are some that you can recharge that you can just go straight to solar. There are some that you can recharge off of USB. So you recharge a battery bank, which then you, you use that to recharge uh, batteries, you know. And so there's all these different options you have, but the big things are going to be communication and light when you've dealt with all those other necessities. All right. And so you need to have some kind of options when it comes to a power grid failure. And again, I think this is probably more probable than dealing with an EMP or solar flare. There are so many possibilities that could cause 
uh, a grid down situation. And, you know, this article did, a, I thought, a great job of discussing a lot of those. And there's probably a lot more that we just even that they didn't even cover in, in this uh, article as well. So it's a lot to think about and maybe some mind shifts that need to happen when it comes to long term uh, grid down situation. You might need to like, like, all right, hey, I understand things are going to be, it's not going to be fun, right? This is not going to be camping. This is not a weekend of camping. It's not going to be fun. There's going to be some uh, concern there. My family members are not going to be happy at first. Okay, we're uh, playing games by candlelight. And then as it goes on, it's going to be uh, more worrisome. You're going to hear about things happening out there because people are taking advantage of the dark and all those different kinds of things. So, it's one of those things that uh, it would be really smart to prepare for. You know, when we talk about preparing, we talk about preparing for those things that are more probable. And really, this is probably more probable. And, and if you have what you need to be able to go through a long-term situation, if you're just in a, in a power-out situation for a day or two, then you're in good shape. You know, day, two, three days, whatever, you're in good shape still because you have all those all those uh, things covered. But if it was a longer term situation, you know, one of the things they said about the, the the winter storm that we had down here in Texas is if the grid would have gone down completely, it, it could have been months before it came up. Now, I don't know if that's partly a scare tac uh, tactic or, or what, but you don't want to think about that. You know, you don't want to think about what would happen if the grid was down for a couple of months. Uh, that wouldn't have been good. So some mind shifts and some things that you need to think about when you are thinking uh, for a longer term grid down situation. And we, I mean, it might not be Mad Max. It could just be you lose power for a week. You know, down here in hurricane country, we understand that. You can lose power for a week. You can lose power for two weeks. Uh, that's that's not uncommon, you know. And so having having the supplies for that would be greatly appreciated by your family and it's just i think it's a smart move it's one of those investments when we when we think about what we want to have in our preparedness arsenal well guys that's it for episode 717 hey don't forget subscribe to the show by clicking the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app and that way you never miss another episode of sweet prepper goodness and like always, I'm going to link to this article in the show notes so you can go over to Survival Sullivan, give them a little bit of love and uh, read their articles over there. If you're looking for more preparedness and self-reliant information, then don't forget to go to PrepperWebsite.com. We link to 8 to 12 articles every day of the very best self-reliant articles out there. We have pages dedicated to alternative news, firearms, DIY, Bible prophecy, frugal living, and homesteading. And don't forget, join the email list if you haven't. When you do, I'm going to send you a free PDF on 25 handpicked preparedness articles that you should read. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until next time, live with no regrets and stay prepped and aware. Peace.